This is the History Tavern Podcast. Auguste Village lived an unlikely life. A Prussian nobleman turned communist revolutionary, who then became an American Civil War hero. As David T. Dixon writes, in an age of global social, economic, and political upheaval, transatlantic radicals like Village helped affect America's second great revolution. In this episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talked to David T. Dixon about his brand new book, Radical Warrior, Auguste Village's journey from German revolutionary to Union general. Dixon's work not only tells us about Village's remarkable life, it offers, as Dixon writes, an intimate glimpse into the international dimension of the Civil War. Village fought unapologetically in Germany and America for social justice, for universal human rights, against all forms of slavery, and he despised organized religion. Our conversation picks up after I asked David about the influence Thomas Paine had on revolutionaries like Village. I decided to start my book with, with the Paine celebration for two reasons. Uh, first of all, it's, it's my point of view, and I think it's the point of view of, of, of more and more scholars today of the American Civil War, that this was really a, uh, an international event and should be looked at uh, through that prism, if you will. So, and as you mentioned, Paine was an international figure. Not only was he, uh, you could say, the ideological uh, father of the American Revolution, he was also quite involved uh, with the French Revolution and was, was over, actually got caught up in the French Revolution and, and had trouble getting home. So, so Paine becomes somewhat of a pariah in the early 19th century uh, despite his tremendous influence in the American Revolution, really for a couple reasons. Uh, number one, he's, he's, uh, he's very much of a, a humanist uh, and eschews uh, any organized religion. So that doesn't sit particularly well uh, in a in a country which which is uh, where organized religion is is very strong at that time after the Second Enlightenment. Also, Paine is is really increasingly viewed as as a radical. My favorite uh, quote from Paine is, "My country is the world, and my religion is to do good." So yeah. he he was certainly. He was certainly not a nationalist, and increasingly uh, the United States became more and more nationalistic, and he certainly wasn't a religious man. He became quite unpopular with mainstream America uh, in the early 19th century, but on the other hand became quite a folk hero with, uh, with radicals worldwide and, and is even today somewhat of a, a folk hero. Uh, there are still Thomas Paine associations that exist all over the country and focus mainly on his, uh, his humanist orientation and his dedication to uh, universal human rights. Can you talk a little bit about his early life, born in, born in Prussia, I think what is modern-day Poland? He came from the, uh, I guess, uh, Americanized would be the Junker uh, nobility. So this was the this was a noble family, but almost a upper middle class noble family. Certainly not an aristocratic family. His father was the mayor of the town in which he was born. His mother was uh, a Polish actress. His father was also a war hero. 
so in in his class, it was expected that, that several of the men, if not all the men in the family, would serve in the military. And so when his father died, when uh, Village was uh, three years old, I believe, his mother could not support the family uh, on his, on his on her uh, her husband's pension. So she sent her two sons off, and, and it's interesting that they went to different. Uh, Places. So her, her one son went to uh, one of her brothers, who was a retired uh, Prussian military officer, and uh, Auguste Village went to live with the family of, a, uh, of an aunt. This aunt married Friedrich Schleiermacher, uh, who many might call the, the father of German liberal theology. He was also one of the founders of the, uh, of the University at Berlin. These two young boys went to to very different places and as a result they were exposed to very different influences. Auguste Village's brother ends up being, they both go into the Prussian military, but Auguste Village's brother ends up being a loyal soldier for the Prussian army and retires as a lieutenant. Uh, Auguste Village also uh, goes into the army, also becomes a lieutenant, but after a 17-year career he starts to get exposed to uh, to radical philosophers and uh, ends up rebelling, leaving the military and joining the uh, the revolutionaries in 1848. Can you talk a little bit more about his time in the in, in the military? It was it seems somewhat surprising to me reading that someone could can sort of be exposed or at least become a radical like him in the Prussian military. But it wasn't. What was it? Was it sort of unique, or or wasn't it? What sort of created that setting? I mean, I guess other than what you mentioned, his relationship with uh, his stepfather. I think there's a couple of competing impulses that are going on in the early 19th century in Prussia, uh, intellectually. So on the one hand, you have the most literate country in Europe, by far. There is this openness to all kinds of all kinds of intellectual currents that are running through the early 19th century. And this is, of course, it is a time when the Industrial Revolution is starting to kick in. So you have a lot of philosophers, poets, all kinds of people trying to figure out how they're going to deal with the social question, uh, the question of, of how the workplace is changing, factories are starting to be built, uh, people are not uh, really owning the, the fruits of their own labor uh, anymore. So all that is going on, and in the, in the late 1820s, early 1830s, these pressures start to accelerate. So the Prussian government and the Prussian military are having a hard time trying to achieve a balance between the intellectual enrichment that they're that they expect their army officers to attain as part of their training versus some of these intellectual currents that they find subversive, such as socialism in particular. So it was it really was not that unusual and I think as you read in the book there were there would be reading circles established and then the censors would come in and uh, and prohibit certain books from from being read and and this was a uh, this was a kind of a uh, psychological chess match that was going on back and forth between the authorities and the more liberally minded soldiers who were were looking to answers to to some of these big questions. 
Well, as you said, he um, he resigns from the military, and just as you point out in the book, you know, he throw not throws away, but he's in the military for twenty years and just sort of starts over. But it so happens that it's right on the eve of the eighteen forty eight uh, revolutions of Europe, um, which was the, reading your book was quite an education for me on what was going on in Europe at that time. So, if you could, and I know that this is a tough question because it's big, but if you could just sort of paint a picture that brings us to 1848. I mean, I think, uh, as you say in, in the book, by 1848, Europe seems to be sleeping on a volcano. I think in order to briefly explain that, you really have to go back to the American Revolution. In the American Revolution, you had similar impulses, uh, a desire for uh, freedom, a desire to throw off absolute rule. And uh, and this set quite an example for the world when the revolutionists in, in the colonies threw off that royal rule. But that was accomplished in, in, uh, in quite a different way than, than other revolutions later in the 1840s would, or even in the 1830s would happen. So, so that was accomplished with, with, a, uh, with a conventional army. And, uh, and the, aims of, uh, the aims of the revolutionists in America were quite limited, if you think about it. So... Uh, certainly, it was quite radical politically to throw off absolute rule. But on the other hand, this was not a a social transformation. Uh, elites like George Washington, for example, remained uh, social and economic elites. What happens in the French Revolution, which you could say was somewhat inspired by the American Revolution, the French decide to go all in on social revolution. So this is not merely a political revolution to throw off aristocracy. This first French Revolution is an attempt to completely reorder society politically, economically, socially, and rather than being carried out by a conventional army as as even the ragtag American Revolutionary Army under Washington could be called, this was mostly carried out by uh, gangs of rioters in the streets, loosely organized. This anti-aristocratic sentiment had been building up for years as the Industrial Revolution progressed. So this all comes to a head in 1789 in France, and of course uh, it's, it devolves, if you will, into this macabre nightmare where uh, anyone who expresses any dissent against the, the uh, the revolutionists are executed, and and leads to, of course, a Napoleon and and his uh, dictatorship, if you will. So that reaction pretty much stifles these type of movements until the 1830s, when they start bubbling up again. And again, they're put down rather easily, and there's not uh, there's not a a huge swell of popular support, but it becomes increasingly apparent that something something needs to happen. So. In 1848, really in 1847 in Switzerland, and there, these protests and these riots, and, and in some cases these political events start to happen, but the real catalyst is in France in 1848. So revolution breaks out there, and you know, despite the fact that there's no social media, there's no Twitter, there's no internet, word, gets, word travels fairly fast, Europe is fairly small, so these tendencies, these Republican democratic tendencies 
start breaking out all over Europe. And it's initially and, uh, pretty successful in France too, right? The, the king abdicates and I just I find it so interesting in your book. Um, these weren't, I mean, they, they were several different movements, but they were so linked in, in France. I believe the individuals who took over, they ended up sitting in the throne of, um, of, uh, of King Louis-Philippe, and they wrote uh, the people the people of Paris to all Europe, liberty, equality, fraternity. Just, again, to sort of point out the theme of this, of your book, I mean, this, these, these things are all connected, these revolutions and sort of these ideas. They're not isolated. So if, if you can, uh, uh, David, talk a little bit about, so Willick left the military, resigned, and he ends up be, being a rebel leader. So what role does he play uh, in 1848, 1849? during the revolution. He plays actually two different roles in, in those. Uh, so in 1848, Friedrich Hecker, who is the, the leader of the liberal uh, revolutionists in Baden, which is a uh, principality in the southwest of what is now Germany, he tries to create a republic in that area. And and Villages ends up being his uh, chief military officer. They expect that tens of thousands of people would flock to the cause, and, and that really doesn't happen. So this particular revolt ends up being a very brief revolution. It's uh, put down with relative ease, and the revolutionists, like Villisch, are scattered to various countries, Switzerland and France primarily. And it's in France uh, in the latter months of 1848 and the early months of 1849 where Villisch is constantly in contact with other revolutionaries, particularly Mazzini and, and Garibaldi in Italy and then Sicily. So to your point, because there is this pan-European revolution going on, if you will, he on various occasions is invited to lead German troops, for example, in Italy in the effort to create a Roman Republic and free Sicily from the from Bourbon rule. And he has to balance those impulses and, and those desires and those priorities with the fact that another revolution in Germany and the German states would might break out at any time. And that does happen in 1849. But in 1849, it's, it's a little bit different. In 1849, the revolution, the impetus for that revolution really is the creation of a unified uh, Germany with a with a constitutional monarch somewhat similar to uh, to the setup in Great Britain. Uh, however, there the radicals uh, like Villisch, the socialists like Marx and company. This is not this is not the French Revolution all over again. This is this is a a revolution for a constitutional monarchy, and they're really not all in on on this revolution. Uh, but they go along with it because at least if they could overthrow the monarchy, then uh, then perhaps down the road they could achieve some of their other goals like Republican government, like workers' rights, like uh, human freedom. So uh, this that particular uh, revolution, 1849, is actually much more, in the German states, is much more successful. There are upwards of 40,000, 50,000 uh, revolutionary soldiers, but they're greatly outmatched by the Prussians. And after a few months 
of uh, Prussian intervention, they're also crushed. And, and again, Villach and his crew, at least, uh, refugee in France. You mentioned um, Marx, uh, which we've already mentioned uh, Marx a couple of times, and I saw you joke the other day on Twitter. I, actually, I don't think it was a joke. It sounded like something that actually happened. I mean, you, you when you were pitching this book, uh, you sort of boiled uh, Village down to uh, an American Civil War hero who was to the left of Marx, which is certainly the case. So uh, can you talk about uh, his relationship with Marx, uh, sort of where they differed, and I think, you, I mean, you just touched on it, but where they differed and what that relationship was like, particularly in London. So, yeah, just to go backward briefly, I mean, there's there's so much talk about uh, Marx and and Marxism, and uh, there was even a kind of a comical book that came out a few years ago called Lincoln's Marxists, written by some neo-Confederates. So there's, I think there's really a, a, a pretty significant misunderstanding of Marx's early philosophies, his early influence, uh, or lack of influence, let's say, and, you know, what, what people like Marx were, were after in the 1840s. And, you know, certainly they were anti-capitalist, but they were, some of their primary goals were universal freedom, workers' rights, popular government. So these, these goals were not, not very similar to the kind of uh, state-run communism that you see, for example, in in, in uh, Russia sure. beginning in 1917. So, so this was a this was, at this time, uh, socialism and communism were were really young, undeveloped ideas. And uh, after the 1848 revolution, in which Marx and and uh, Villach were 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 definitely associates. Marx came to a, a pretty early conclusion that that this type of extremely radical, violent, uh, immediate overthrow of the monarchs in Europe and the subsequent replacement of that regime, if you will, with a communist uh, state was was just impractical. wasn't going to happen. So he, as he developed his uh, his philosophies. He came to this conclusion that you you needed to have you needed to have progressive states of economic development, including capitalism, before you got to the point where the great masses of the people would accept something like socialism or communism. So he became more conservative in that way, more dedicated to a long-term development of his ideas, versus Villach was all about a radical revolution accomplished by violent means, whatever means necessary, and that window, which Marx felt had been closed by certainly the end of 1849, that window was still open, so he was still advocating for continued revolutions and revolts in Europe and willing to, to go back after his exile eventually to London, as you mentioned, they're both in London. He's willing to go back at any time, lead troops in yet another violent uh, revolution, which Marx believes endangers the whole enterprise. So that's really the, uh, to oversimplify it, that's really the crux of their disagreement. Right. I think the other, the other, uh, the other crux of their disagreement really is uh, ego. Yeah. Both of these men are very strong figures. Uh, Marx uh, really doesn't get along with anyone, uh, and 
and is probably, uh, you know, besides being an eminent uh, political philosopher, is probably one of the greatest experts in character assassination that, that I've ever read about. So anyone that disagreed with Marx was, was basically uh, uh, dehumanized by Marx. So there was a duel. There was a heated exchange of ideas between Villish and Marx at one of, one of the meetings of the Communist League in London. And Villish was about to challenge Marx to a duel, which Marx certainly would not have accepted when one of Marx's young acolytes, a man by the name of Conrad Schramm, stood up, uh, slapped Will, uh, Villish in the face, and basically challenged him to a duel. The problem was Schramm had never fired a pistol in his life, and Villish, of course, as the man who was challenged, as the, as the code duello dictated, Villish had the choice of weapons, and of course he chose pistols. Right. Uh, so dueling is, is illegal in, uh, in England at that time, so they, they actually uh, took boats over to uh, across the channel. They conducted the duel there. Villish allowed his, uh, his opponent to shoot first, and of course he, he missed badly, and Villish shot Shram in the head, fortunately only grazing him. That was the duel. Wow, what commitment to go to to get on a boat and go all the way to Belgium to make sure that they they did it. Um, to move ahead into Village goes to the U.S. Uh, early 1850. What does he think of the U.S.? I mean, obviously it becomes his home, and he lives there and and dies there after going back to Germany briefly later in life. But what what does he like about the U.S.? First of all, Villish was raised, uh, when you talk about religion, Villish was raised as a Lutheran, but raised by a, a liberal family in Schleiermacher's family unit. So he began to have doubts about his uh, religion and religion in general early on. By the time he emigrates to America in 1853, like many of the... Uh, so-called 48ers. He is at very, at, at the very least, a free thinker, but, but in reality, he's an atheist. So many of these Germans that are coming over in 1848, as opposed to the one, or after 1848, as opposed to those that came over, say, a generation before, are not very much impressed with organized religion in general. In fact, they feel like organized religion is a great impediment to uh, society moving forward toward its ultimate goal, which in, in their mind is a society where all men are free, regardless of their uh, color, that, that their intellectual development leads them to a point where, where they become much more concerned with the welfare of the community versus the welfare of the individual. So when he arrives in, in America, you know, he, he obviously he sees a lot of things that he likes, and he sees a lot of things that, uh, that trouble him. So some of the things that he likes, for example, is, and it, as you can imagine, after trying to successfully create a revolution focused on Republican governments and universal human rights, he's impressed by the fact that these beliefs are at least uh, espoused in documents like the Declaration of Independence. So there is a, a tradition in America that involves democracy, that involves, to some extent, freedom. So in that, in that sense, America, for these 48ers from Europe, not only from Germany, but from Ireland and from Hungary and Italy, America is, is perhaps the last best hope for the future of, of Republican government. And so that's why you see a lot of these immigrants, at least these, these intellectuals, 
emigrating there. It also, of course, is a great refuge economically. So most of these immigrants like Village are, are, and he being the exception in this case, they're arriving in America because there's economic opportunity for their family. Most of them are not going there because they're political refugees like Village. So there's quite a bit to like, and then there's quite a bit to, to be troubled by. So obviously he's troubled by the inherent conflict in America where you preach you preach freedom and equality, and yet you you hold sl- and enslave people. He becomes uh, very early in in his trip to America. He becomes convinced that once the immigrants arrive in America, they're much they they tend to abandon some of their uh, more humanistic or altruistic motives and are and get caught up in the art of money seeking. And so they they lose some of their commitment to community and and then and then of course the third thing that he realizes which is much stronger in America at this time it according to him than it is in Europe is this commitment to organized religion and in the Catholic Church in particular. So he has he has great animus toward the Catholic Church and what he believes are their superstitious rites and feels like that the Catholics are uh, being hoodwinked to a certain extent, like like they were a tool of the aristocracy in Europe. Now they're a tool of, of the great industrial capitalists in in America who want to keep the workers in their place while they make outsized profits. Very much conflicted, knowing that he's gone to per- perhaps the only place where he could make this his dreams of a more perfect republic a reality in America, but at the same time, he sees a lot of obstacles in that system. Well, and I think that's what he sees Lincoln's call to arms in 1861 as, an opportunity to America what he has been trying to accomplish in Europe uh, all those years. So can you touch on that? Uh, I mean, I think I think the exact quote in your book is, for, for Village, the call to arms in 1848 and 1861 were virtually identical. How does he, how does he see it as the same fight? I think, first of all, most of the native-born recruits into the Union Army are, are signing up for, uh, to preserve the the constitutional union, so that's that's their primary motivation is to save the union, and that's of course what Lincoln's uh, espoused initial objective is is to save the union, as he said most famously early on, with or without slavery. For radicals like Village, it's a their motivations are much different. So they are looking at this revolution, which they expect to be international in scope, to help bring the American Republic closer to those initial promises of human freedom and, and, and universal rights, closer to that promise than, than what exists in 1861. And it is absolutely essential to eliminate slavery as part of that a part of that desire to to form in in Lincoln's later words the more perfect republic the more perfect nation so i've gone through so much correspondence i don't find any uh, correspondence where village even mentions the word union in in the uh, years leading up to or in the uh, or during the Civil War, so uh, it's a it's a it's a very different set of motivations for these uh, radical leaders. And uh, again, 
many of the people that are being recruited into the Union Army, what's their primary motivation? Their primary motivation in a lot of cases is the bounty, is patriotism. In the, in the Germans' uh, immigrants' case, for example, it might be to prove that they are worthy citizens. But these radical 48ers, with their very different uh, motivations, have quite an influence on, on the rank and file. It's interesting how Villisch, even during the war, is constantly lecturing his, his uh, troops, not only on, on the evils of slavery and, and the desire to get rid of the southern aristocracy of slave owners, but on all kinds of subjects, from astronomy to, uh, to, to geology to philosophy. Um, so uh, so he, he really has a vision of, of, of an enlightened, informed citizenry that is going to uh, change this republic in ways that are going to make it closer to an ideal democratic republic. There's a great story in your book where he's giving one of those lectures in 10 degree weather. Uh, and the men are like, okay. Uh, but but that story aside, I mean, talk about Village as a leader. I mean, if, if you have to go fight and get taken care of by uh, a superior officer, He's somebody you want to. He's somebody you want to be under their command, right? I mean, he's uh, garnered a lot of respect from his men. Yes, he uh, he definitely was was one of those uh, colonels and eventually generals that that, as the saying goes, led from the front. So he was uh, he was always in the thick of the action, uh, willing to do willing to do whatever he was asking his soldiers to do. So to the point of uh, where I can, I can be somewhat critical of him in, in ways that he, he had a habit of putting himself in extremely dangerous situations that he probably didn't, didn't need to, uh, to put himself in. But by, by taking these risks, he really won the love and admiration of his troops and, uh, I think if you examine the careers of, of other successful military leaders in the Civil War, you'd probably find some of the same some of the same qualities in terms of bravery, of course, mutual respect, the way that he handled his men in terms of giving them as much freedom as and even calling them citizens when he addressed them or or his little children. It was a very it was a very disciplined, but loving and uh, respectful relationship he had uh, with his men and his his men reciprocated how was he as a tactician well i would i would have to say i would have to defer actually to some of my friends that are that are uh, like dave powell for example who are who are much more tactical experts but from from what they've told me and from my analysis, uh, he was an excellent tactician. So right. he was quite innovative. Mm -hmm. uh, he developed, uh, he developed uh, several innovative tactical techniques, if you will, in his repertoire that greatly contributed to his success. And he also pushed the envelope on, uh, on some of the uh, technology in terms, of, in terms of the first dedicated Pioneer Corps in, in the Union Army. So, so he, uh, company, excuse me, not core. So, so he was definitely a forward thinking type of leader 
And certain, certain uh, generals like Rosecrans were very open to that type of innovation. Then later, uh, when George Thomas took over for Rosecrans, uh, not so much. Thomas was very much of a by-the-book type of, uh, of uh, army commander. And so uh, once Thomas took over in, I think, October of 1863, then had less opportunities to be innovative tactically. Just to sort of touch on where he operated, he uh, was he fought in the West. Um, he fought he fought at Shiloh, correct? I mean, it was was quite brave at Shiloh. Yeah, Shiloh was uh, the the second day at Shiloh uh, where he turned his back to enemy fire and uh, drilled his soldiers in the manual of arms exercise to calm them down while literally soldiers were dropping in the ranks in front of him. That particular event made him famous within the Union Army, and his performance of his, uh, of his regiment there led to his promotion to uh, Brigadier General. Right, right. And then he, he's captured and spends some miserable months at Libby Prison. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I, and, of course, there's a lot of people know about Libby Prison, and its reputation. But what I found more interesting was the time that he spent in prison in Atlanta. So he, he was housed in Atlanta, I believe, for about six weeks in a former Masonic Hall in downtown Atlanta. And that particular experience uh, where he interacted frequently with both uh, Confederate sympathizers and also with, with a, a, a quite large circle of union sympathizers within the city of Atlanta. I found that uh, particularly fascinating about his prison experience. What wound does he receive that effectively knocks him out, um, at least of, of uh, leading in the front? In May, uh, particularly May 15th of 1864, he's at Resaca in Georgia, which is uh, south of Dalton, the, the first significant battle of the Atlantic, of Sherman's Atlanta campaign. And as usual, uh, he's He's disregarding his own personal safety. He climbs to the uh, uh, the parapet of the uh, the earthworks that the soldiers had built, uh, and is taking stock of the situation when a Confederate sniper wounds him pretty severely. The bullet passes through his arm, and uh, then through his back, narrowly missing his spine. He is basically loses the use of his right arm for the rest of his life, effectively. Doesn't end his military career, but ends his combat career. There's a story at the end of your book, well, not, not, not at, the, at the end of the war, uh, where you see a very human side of a village, and, it, and it, it gives you a new perspective on Joseph Hooker. It's so sad to read. There's a young Confederate guerrilla who's a prisoner, uh, and Village is trying to save his life. The amazing thing, of course, is this happens after the war is already over. Yeah. So, so this 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 young, uh, I think he was fifteen at the time. This this young boy who had participated in guerrilla raids in Kentucky became almost uh, like a favorite errand boy uh, during his captivity in Cincinnati when uh, when Village was commanding the post at Cincinnati after he was wounded. And so he became quite popular with, uh, with the soldiers there and with Phyllis himself. And, uh, but he was sentenced to be executed. And that once the war ended, most people figured that 
there was really no reason to to execute this, uh, particularly a young impressionable boy like this. Just they expected just to send him home, but uh, but Hooker, uh, Joseph Hooker, who was who was Village's superior at that at that time, demanded that he be executed as planned. However, that execution was supposed to happen at the same time that Lincoln's funeral was happening, and uh, Hooker was off at Lincoln's funeral. And Villish made an appeal to uh, Secretary of War Stanton and was able to get President Johnson to stay the execution. Hooker returned from Lincoln's funeral. He was furious that the boy had not been executed, and and he ended up executing him. And and you know, based on what I've read about Villish's reaction, is this really kind of broke his heart, and he immediately uh, asked to be relieved of his command and transferred uh, to another command. When he eventually leaves the army after, and I know we're, we're skipping many, many very good episodes here in the war. I mean, uh, Village fought at uh, Chattanooga and Chickamauga, among other battles. So this is a reason to buy David's book. Uh, we're not going to get to to everything. After the war, he, he's very popular. I mean, you talk of one episode where I think it's when he's running for this political position. And of course, throughout the book, I mean, he's not a very good politician. He's not one to compromise, as we've already talked about. Um, but he, he ends up running for this position, I think, as a solicitor. Um, and there's 20,000 people at the rally. He's a very popular man after the war. Yeah, he, uh, he is pushed into politics very reluctantly. And uh, I think he knows that Politics and political office in general is not a strength of his, but his his pension is 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 pretty meager, and his friends are embarrassed that such a popular, uh, well respected and accomplished military hero should have to live in essentially poverty, which I don't think ever really bothered Village. <laughs> right, he seemed to take pride. But anyway, in it. yeah, yeah, they convince him to uh, to run for this office. He's elected, and this office is a boondoggle. Uh, a huge scandal develops that really hurts his reputation. And after the scandal dies down, uh, he actually travels back to Germany, coincidentally at the same time when the uh, Franco-Prussian War is about to break out. So it's it's pretty ironic that he, he goes to Germany, he visits his brother. They still have not reconciled over the fact that Willisch rebelled against the king. But he does visit his brother, he tries to make amends, and then the Franco-Prussian War breaks out. So at, at this point, he is 60 years old. He goes, he, he makes the journey to Berlin and offers his services to the King of Prussia to help unify Germany, even though this certainly, the outcome is certainly not going to be the kind of uh, democratic republic he, uh, already, he always hoped for, but certainly... Uh, and, and the King of Prussia was the same man that, as a prince, he had he had opposed on the battlefield in 1849. So that just shows how important a unified Germany was to both him and his peers. It wasn't just about it wasn't just about these republican principles of government or or the freedom of uh, the human race. It was also about uniting Germany. And he felt so strongly about that that he was willing to offer his services, which, of course, were declined. So he went back to university. Uh, it, that was always one of his, I think, his great regrets, that he didn't have a formal 
university experience. So he went back and uh, went to the university at Berlin where Schleiermacher had taught and received his departure certificate there, uh, then attended a trade school, and then eventually, uh, after about 18 months, uh, went back to America. Was he ever married? He was never married. Uh, his, his sexuality is somewhat of a controversial mystery. There are some scholars that insist that he was a gay man, but most of that evidence comes from one source, uh, which happens to be Marx and Engels, sure. who, who at that point were extremely hostile towards, uh, towards Phyllis and, uh, and certainly willing to do whatever it took to destroy his reputation. So uh, I'm not saying that that was or wasn't true. Sure. We really just can't find evidence for that. But, but he, did, he never did marry. Uh, the other interesting uh, rumor that came up, which he denied, uh, however, there's evidence in letters that this may have been true, is that he, he did have, uh, among his heterosexual relationships, a relationship with a woman of color hmm. while he was living in Washington, D.C. Uh, and there was, there was some scuttlebutt that he had actually uh, illegally married her. However, he denied those rumors uh, once he became an editor in, in Cincinnati. So we'll probably never know of that. But he, he did die unmarried. And also, ironically, it was his brother who inherited some of the substantial wealth that he had accrued while he was in political office in, uh, in Ohio. Where, where did he die and what were his final years like? So he died in uh, St. Mary's, Ohio, which is a, a small German settlement in north central Ohio, south of Toledo. His final years were mostly spent in uh, quiet retirement. However, there were certain points where he did remain politically active. And I thought, uh, well, one of the most interesting times was in 1873. In 1872, uh, some of his former associates, Carl Schurz primarily, had, uh, had started a, a political party called the Liberal Republican Party in an effort to oust Ulysses S. Grant from, from the presidency. That, uh, as I call it in my book, that effort was a drunken stumble. <laughs> they nominated the same candidate, Horace Greeley, that uh, the Democrats nominated, and, and it was just a fiasco. In the aftermath of that disaster, he became one of the founders of a, <laughs> a very uh, short-lived party called the People's Party, which was an overtly socialist party. He turned on many of his former Republican sponsors, particularly uh, Governor Oliver Morton of Indiana, who had, had hired him uh, effectively as the colonel of, uh, of his, first, uh, his first regiment, the 32nd Indiana. So, so he, uh, he helped to, to start this, this People's Party, and it was about as successful as the, as the uh, Temperance Party that year. So it didn't... It didn't uh, it didn't go very far. Right, right. But even though he was in retirement, he, I, I think one admirable trait was that he did stay he did stay dedicated to his principles, his political principles and his social principles uh, throughout his life, even though most of his efforts to improve the condition of, of workers really came to naught and certainly uh, certainly he he was not successful in uh, in his in his revolutions in Europe either so he could hang his hat on on helping uh, the union win the civil war and certainly help achieve abolition and and some degree of uh, 
citizenship for African Americans. But but like many radicals, I, I think throughout history, he failed in most of his endeavors. And, and some of the things that, that radicals like Billish uh, sought to accomplish eventually became mainstream public policy in America, like uh, the eight-hour workday, unemployment insurance, mm-hmm. Social Security. Uh, these were radical ideas in yeah. the 1850s, but now they're part of mainstream America. So uh, I think if there's if there's one lesson to be learned from from radicals like Villish is it just is you can't necessarily judge judge their success by the success they had in their lifetime. You really have to look at uh, at at their ideas and the impact that those ideas had uh, when society was ready for them. Can you talk about the challenge in writing this book, considering the amount of time and the amount of space it covers, the the fact that I'm assuming many of your sources were in German? Uh, you know, I mean, it almost seems impossible. Uh, you know, I can only imagine sort of having the idea and then sort of being like, okay, now how, how the heck do I make this happen? So can you just sort of talk about the, the challenges in the process of writing this? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. I, I know you read my first book, and that, that was a solo effort uh, that I could accomplish uh, very easily uh, on my own with very little assistance. Uh, and so the biggest lesson I learned in trying to, to accomplish this biography of Village was uh, the value of collaborating with peers. So... The deep, dark secret is I do not speak German, I don't read German, so I could not have accomplished this without some very close partnerships, and two in particular. Uh, very early in the research, I discovered that a, a PhD candidate in Germany had done his master's thesis on Villach and was researching his, uh, his PhD dissertation. So he and I developed this partnership and uh, even got to the point where when I traveled to Germany, he and I walked in Village's footsteps in Germany. He came over to the U.S. and I took him around to the battlefield. So oh. it was it, it was really something that as a person who grew up in Germany, there were things that he could help me understand about the sources that, of course, I never could have understood. The second person was a person that I met at an event in Gettysburg, she's also from Germany. She's a librarian over there. Her name is Andrea Hurd. And uh, Andrea did an incredible amount of work for me as a volunteer translator. In fact, uh, Villish wrote a 70-page pamphlet about his experiences uh, in leaving the Prussian army. She translated the entire pamphlet for me and as a volunteer. Uh, I would send her uh, passages from in 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 fracture, uh, script that I couldn't decipher. Uh, her mother uh, still read the old uh, German handwriting and the old uh, German uh, printed script. So without those two individuals, I I couldn't have accomplished this. So uh, so hats off to them for 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 helping me with that. The other big challenge in terms of process was that Villach left no collection of personal papers. Mm. And typically, that would be a knockout for me. I typically would not take on a project without having a significant archive of personal papers. However, this story was so compelling 
and I thought so important in so many different ways. When I started to do the preliminary research, uh, what I did find, for example, I, I mentioned the one pamphlet. He wrote another pamphlet basically describing his issues with the military uh, after the war. He was a newspaper editor. And when I started digging into the personal letters in other collections uh, from him, the quality of that correspondence was, was phenomenal. He, by chance or, or design, we have very intimate letters at critical junctions of his life that really help explain his radicalization, why he was making the choices he did at the time that he made those choices in his own words. And those, those letters were so intimate and so revealing that once, once I got a hold of a couple of those, I, I knew we could, uh, we could make a story out of it. And it's a hell of a story. A very good story. Uh, Radical Warrior, August Village's Journey from German Revolutionary to Union General. David T. Dixon, uh, where can we find it? Where can we find your other works? You we, uh, mentioned your previous book, The Lost Gettysburg Address. That's another great work. Where can we find those? So uh, you can visit my website. If you just, in your Google search engine, if you type in B, B as in boy, B list history, uh, you'll find it. Or you can go directly to uh, www.davidtdixon.com, and that'll take you. Uh, not only to uh, information on those books, but all of my uh, published articles in uh, journals and, uh, and popular magazines are all archived, uh, and you can download all those articles free on my uh, website. There's some really good stuff there. Uh, David T. Dixon, thank you so much for, for joining the History yeah. Tavern Podcast. Thanks, Nick. I enjoyed it. Thank you to David T. Dixon, and thank you for listening to the History Tavern Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter.